This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A new, faster way to manipulate genes has scientists dreaming of curing disease and worrying about unintended consequences. It's the subject of today's beta test, where we look at groundbreaking research in Colorado. The technique is called CRISPR-Cas9, and it earned Science Magazine's award for the 2015 Breakthrough of the Year. Dr. Tom Check is a Nobel Prize-winning biochemist who directs the BioFrontiers Lab at CU Boulder. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Dr. Check, thanks for being with us. It's great to be here, Andrea. What does CRISPR let scientists do that they couldn't do before? Well, CRISPR is an exciting and very powerful new technique for genome editing. This set of molecules can zoom around inside of our cells, find a particular part of the DNA, and change it in a predictable way. So imagine that there are uh, 25,000 cars in a medium-sized city, let's say Boulder, for example, that are driving around the city. Mm. Now, this technology would enable you to very quickly find a single car, let's say the one with the Colorado license plate number DNA123. But more than just locating it, it can then make a very specific change to that car. So, for example, it can cut the radiator hose or destroy the left headlight, or it can make the car glow in the dark. Give me an example of how being able to do this would help a living thing, not a car. So uh, the particular example that we're working on in uh, our research lab at CU Boulder has to do with a gene that is actually helping to drive the rapid cell division that is characteristic of cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So if, you want, if we want to study this in the lab, we're very interested in uh, being able to manipulate this system and, for example, revert that cancer-causing change, back to the normal situation and see how the cells respond. Do they immediately change their growth rate or does it take a while? And what other factors are involved in this? Now, if you've got a human tumor uh, that is metastasized, is spread around the body, getting access to all of those cells, I hate to ever use the word impossible, but would be a daunting task. If you can't get in there and get all those cancer cells, how is it going to help someone with cancer? Here's an idea. What if a tumor cell, and this is not just hypothetical, what if a tumor cell uh, stumbles upon a way to evade the human immune system, make itself look like normal cells? This is actually quite common. Now, um, a, a physician could, in principle, collect the white blood cells from a cancer patient and edit their genomes in a way to make them now no longer inhibited by these insidious cancer cells so that they can go now resume their job of finding and destroying the uh, cancer cells as they encounter them. What could it mean for people with other diseases in the future? One intriguing possibility has to do with genetic diseases. We understand very precisely what is wrong with a a person who has sickle cell anemia 
or cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy. Well, now with CRISPR-Cas9, at least under very controlled situations in the laboratory, we could correct that genetic defect. Now, how could this be used therapeutically? Well, it would have to be used very early in embryonic development because once someone has grown to the point where they have trillions of cells in their body, it's very difficult to edit trillions of cells. Someone, though, is 10 years old and has cystic fibrosis, for example. This may not help them. To the first approximation, I think you're right. I think that might be difficult at that, at that point because their body already has trillions of cells, all of which have uh, the same genetic defect. And the ethical elephant in the room is CRISPR could lead to life-saving cures, but it could also be used for things other than curing disease, things that make people wary. The reason that uh, this has created a bit of a, a furor is that when it comes to correcting mistakes in the genome that cause people pain and suffering, it's pretty easy to get general agreement that that would be a good thing. But what if it were used for enhancing characteristics instead of repairing problems? What if it were used to you know, uh, this is a bit science fiction-y, but uh, create a, an army of uh, 10-foot-tall, uh, extremely strong, you know, humans, then that starts getting frightening for many of us. And so just like a lot of scientific discoveries, it seems possible that they could be used either for good purposes or for evil purposes. And, and how do we control that? Is there a way the public could get involved in making some of these decisions, making some of these ethical decisions for the future and, and what this means? Right now, this is at the stage where a number of groups are convening uh, conferences and meetings to have these discussions. At some point, though, this may come to the to the point of legislation, and then certainly um, through our elected representatives – uh, there may be some uh, constraints put on what kind of experiments can legally be done and what kind, uh, at least for the moment, have to be outlawed uh, until we understand better what, what both the potential and the, and the potential problems of the technology might be. How long before you could see this actually used um you know, in the real world with people uh, with serious medical conditions? Sort of a rule of thumb is that it usually takes uh, a decade for a very uh, promising and uh, solid scientific discovery to be developed into a treatment for a disease and then to pass through the very rigorous FDA approval process, sometimes more than a decade. So we're now in year two of this technology, and companies have already uh, been formed to try to make some beneficial use of CRISPR. So I think it's possible that we will see clinical trials starting within the next few years, 
and there might be some promising product ready for approval on the range of 8 to 10 years from now. Dr. Check, thanks for being with us. Andrea, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Tom Check leads the BioFrontiers Institute at CU Boulder, where he uses the CRISPR gene editing technique to study cancer. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis. Just ahead, rafting one of the last free-flowing rivers in the West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Yampa is considered the only free-flowing river left in the Colorado River Basin, and it's one of the last in the West. Nature photographer John Fielder insists that it stays that way. To advocate for the river's wildness, he hopped into a raft, along with longtime whitewater guide and writer Patrick Tierney. The two compiled essays and images from their trip, as well as historical tidbits, into the new book, Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. John, welcome. Thank you, Nathan. So what does it mean for a river to be wild? Well, effectively, it needs not to be dammed and uh, a whole lot of water diverted um, from within its banks and to peak at 17,000 cubic feet per second Mm. early in June from the snowmelt and then recede down to 300 cubic feet per second by the end of the summer. And so why does it matter, in your opinion, that the Yampa stay free-flowing? Biodiversity depends upon ebb and flow, whether it's for endangered fish species like the humpback chub or the squawfish or the pike minnow, um, birds, bacteria, everything, all creatures that depend upon canyons and riverine systems depend upon that ebb and flow, and it doesn't work right. It's like taking predators out of an ecosystem. Everything else goes to heck in a handbasket. Same thing with damming up rivers. And you earn a living as, as a nature photographer, but you call yourself a, a lay naturalist. Um, and say that conservation activism was a huge motivator to do this book. What are your concerns for the Yampa? Well, like we just said, biodiversity, I want that four billion years of the evolution of life to have integrity in this one last free-flowing river canyon of the Colorado River Basin. And for people, you know, ranchers depend upon the flood stages in June to get free water to flood irrigate their hay meadows so they grow tall and fecund. And then there's the rafting industry, just the rest of us who want to have fun, you know, running that river through Yampa Canyon in June and July. And, and I think the, the water aspect of, of the fact that we are Colorado, we're growing, and, uh, you know, the Yampa seems like a very pristine place to maybe say, hey, we can maybe use some of this water. Unfortunately, um, it's tempting to keep taking water from the western slope, which Colorado's been doing for 100 years through pipes and ditches. Um, but... Enough is enough, and uh, we want to protect the integrity of this one last place. And frankly, after studying the state water plan that's just been issued to the governor, um, there's other ways to meet the needs of future water users in Colorado for the coming decades without taking more water from the western slope. And the Yampa was discussed during this uh, the, the water plan that, that has just been issued. We spoke with Jacob Bornstein. He's a program manager with the Colorado Water Conservation Board who helped produce that plan. Uh, he said there are proposed projects for the Yampa. However, those projects are not done deals yet, and they are not mapped out in this new state water plan. Across the state, we have these nine regional stakeholder groups called Basin Roundtables. And the Yampa White Green is interested in up to an additional 15,000 acres of irrigated agriculture in Moffat County that would rely on direct diversions from the Yampa River. 
And Bornstein also said this roundtable has spent a lot of time looking at the potential environmental effects uh, of that and will continue to work with experts on how to move forward on projects in an environmentally conscious way. What are your thoughts? Well, I've looked at the numbers and it's not necessary to divert more water in general from the western slope beyond what water rights already are owned by front range water interest. Um, Basically, we use 5 million acre feet of water per year in Colorado. 90% of that 4 million is for farms and ranches, 1 million for industrial and municipal use. We're going to need with 750,000 to a million new people moving here each decade for the coming decades, about another 800,000 acre feet, 400,000 of which most people agree we can get from conservation. The rest of it, they're going to take it from rivers and put it in reservoirs. But there's a better way, you know, with 90% of all the water coming from farms and ranches, let's use this new concept of short-term leasing from farms and ranches to mitigate the municipal shortfall and not rip off the western slope. And you saw this firsthand actually on the river. You you had an experience with that. I want to move away from the politics. I know it can get really in the in the weeds with that and, and back to that trip along the Yampa. According to your book, more than a half billion years of the Earth's geological process is exposed on the rocks along the canyons lining the river. What what does that look like and how does it feel to be to be in that area? Well, speaking of weeds, yes, there's <laughs> lots of floral growth on the side of the river and then Beyond the floral growth are uh, over 1,000-foot-high sandstone canyon walls. So you're almost in a cave with this uh, cobalt blue Colorado sky above you most of the time. Um, One feels maybe protected. It's psychologically a beautiful thing being surrounded by these 800-million-year-old sandstone walls. And, uh, And then again with all the fecundity of life itself down there. Um, there really are very few experiences on Earth that uh, are as sublime as rafting the Yampa River. And humans have been interacting with the Yampa for, for many, 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 many years. T- tell me about some of the, the first Yampa Basin dwellers and the rock art that they left behind. Well, we go back to about the year zero uh, yeah. A.D., and um, there were some cousins of the Anasazi, the Puebloan cultures in southwestern Colorado, called the Fremont. Indians, and they existed simultaneously from about 0 to 1200 AD, and then they gave way to the more modern uh, Ute Indians, about 1500. But interestingly enough, the Fremont culture, which was more in northern Utah and western Colorado, they wore sandals. The Anasazi wore, um, or excuse me, they wore moccasins. Uh-huh. The Anasazi wore sandals. Interesting. And so you saw some of this artwork on the walls of the canyon. Yeah, there's an inholding famous ranch called the Mantle Ranch. And if you can get permission from the landowner to walk up to the walls on the ranch, you can see remarkable panels of uh, a thousand-year-old Fremont Indian um, petroglyphs. And can you describe what it looks like? Is it like handprints or, or what, are they, what do they look like? Well, it's a version of this book, Colorado's Yampa River. Um, there's writing, but it's really? it's more pictorial and symbolic um, rather than, of course, uh, our language. But yeah, it's pictures of elk and deer and snakes and bear prints. So everything that uh, was exposed to these cultures, they tried to emulate that artistically on a sandstone wall, which is still there a thousand years later. And I also understand there was another group of individuals that moved in along the river in the late 1800s, including some nefarious people. Well, after the Utes were moved to Utah, they were thrown out because of conflict. And then 
in the 1880s, farmers and ranchers came, and trappers actually uh, were there in the 1820s and 30s. But yeah, they gave way to nefarious people, though romantically nefarious, like Butch Cassidy and yeah. um, his Wild Bunch gang. So and outlaws. Other, yeah, they would rob um, the Union Pacific up in uh, Wyoming. They would uh, rustle cows and then um, retreat back to the canyons of the Green and the Yampa in northwestern Colorado to hide out so the authorities could not find them. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to nature photographer John Fielder about his new book, Colorado's Yampa River. I I understand that during the rafting trip, you had some tricky run-ins with low-lying bridges while the river was running so high. Well, the... The common thread is just big rapids. You just don't want to flip in the rapids. The water's cold at that time of year. Um, But yeah, we did something very few people have done. We rafted all the way from Steamboat Springs to effectively Dinosaur National Monument a couple hundred miles. And um, the river was at at about 6,000 CFS when we put into the river in our boats uh, at the library in downtown Steamboat. And we had failed to thoroughly check out the 12 or 15 um, railroad trestles and other road bridges. And the water level was very close to the bottom of those bridges. So three times I had to dive down into the well of my boat and hold the oars up above me perfectly parallel. And three times my oarlocks came within an inch of the bottom of the bridge and the river's going 10 miles an hour. I can't even imagine what would have happened if I'd gotten hung up on the bottom of the bridge. So you didn't portage. You didn't get out and you actually stayed One time in. we did. One time a friend of mine had actually scouted one of the bridges and said, there's no way you're going to get around. Well, we gave it a try. And then at the last minute I saw it was not going to, I was not going to get underneath. And we, we exited river left and then we lined the boat. We had a rope tied to the bow and let it go under the bridge by itself, then picked up the boat on the other side of the bridge and then continued on our way. So was there any training that you did before you you, you did this rafting or were you just kind of like, I'm going to go and raft the Yampa? You know, I've been here in the in Colorado for 40 years doing every kind of mode of transportation into the backcountry you can do. And I self-taught myself how to uh, go rafting 30 years ago. Actually, a photographer named Tom Till, the me of Utah, and I the first rafting trip I ever did was with Tom down the Yampa River, and he kind of taught me the ins and outs of negotiating that canyon. So, uh, you know, I've been I've rafted thousands and thousands of miles around the West. So, I was ready for this trip. I understand you used a, a point and shoot camera a lot uh, during this trip to get photos. Is that correct? Well, your yeah, your listeners might be interested to know that uh, good quality twelve megapixel. Uh, with good control, point and shoots are about a third of all the photos that I make now. You know, with the live LCD mode, you can get down on the ground and do angles of composition that you can't do with a tripod and a larger SLR uh, camera. So creatively, I can make images that way that I don't make with any other. And in, you know, mobile situations like skiing or river rafting, sometimes it's easier just to use the point and shoot. And I suppose if you flip over in the raft, it'll be less expensive to replace that equipment. Gosh, um, I have nightmares of flipping over with all my camera <laughs> gear. But uh, yeah, that would save some dollars. So what are some of your favorite for photographs that you took on this trip? There, there are countless uh, other you know, photos in there. What were some of your favorite? Well, obviously, the canyon walls make uh, remarkable framing for um, landscape images. But you know, the fecundity biodiversity is conspicuous and manifest from the bald eagles. We, we saw over 20 inhabited with chicks, an adult bald eagle nest in 125 miles, greater sandhill cranes, 
the flowers, the cactus flowers like claret cup and prickly pear, both in yellow and magenta, um, just bespeaks of how this dry, high desert environment is not, um, you know, the arid, uh, not living place. It's just as fertile and fecund and deserves to be protected, uh, you know, as much as any 12,000 foot uh, mountain wilderness. And we'll have photos, of course, online at cprnews.org. Uh, there, I think there's a mystery a bit with, you know, free-flowing rivers, the Yampa, in a sense of what you can encounter. And I remember reading in your book how the river changes. It, it is not something that is constant. Since it is free-flowing, it floods, it ebbs, it flows. Is that what drew you to do something like this, to take that trip, the unknown a bit? Well, the unknown for sure. I'd, I'd rafted Yampa Canyon, the classic dinosaur national monument stretch of the river several times, but nobody that I knew and I hadn't and Pat had not actually rafted the rest of the river from effectively Steamboat Springs down to Dinosaur National Monument. It's mostly private property and ranches, and you can see the cottonwood trees south of Highway 40 as you go from Steamboat to Maybell, which most of your listeners have probably driven. And I always wanted to see what was within those cottonwood copses. And what we saw uh, blew our minds. I mean, the diversity of wildlife that you can't get to any other way than going down that river. And guess how many people we saw in 125 miles floating the river from Steamboat to Maybell other than us? Zero. Zero. I mean, you talk about solitude and the joy just from being alone with four billion years of the evolution of life on Earth. I mean, that's about as good as life gets in my value system. Did this experience live up to your expectations? You said you wanted to do this for for most of your life. Did it live up to your expectations? It exceeded my expectations. I had no idea the mystery of what was back there and to actually see what we saw um, is a new milestone for me on a river trip. John, thanks so much for being here. Nathan, thanks a lot for letting me talk about the Yamper River, the last free-flowing river in the Colorado River Basin. John Fielder is a nature photographer. He lives north of Silverthorne in Summit County. His latest book is called Colorado's Yampa River, Free-Flowing and Wild, From the Flat Tops to the Greens. See images at cprnews.org. And coming up next, they go to practice and wear team jackets, but they're not college football players. They're competitive meat judges. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Prime, choice, or select? That's a decision you make when you buy meat at the grocery store, but it's not just a selling point. It's an official government grade for the quality of the meat, and there are people who know how to give those grades, and many start their careers competing in collegiate meat judging contests. One is taking place this weekend at the National Western Stock Show. Colorado State University Professor of Animal Science Dale Woner is chairman of the competition. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Dale, not everyone eats meat, but for those who do, what is it that makes some cuts better than others? For, for instance, what makes a prime cut better than, uh, than a select cut of meat? Yeah, it's a good question. We're ultimately concerned with the eating experience. And the thing that most people think about, and correctly so, is marbling uh, in the muscle cut or in the meat. And marbling contributes to the flavor and tenderness and juiciness of that product. But for this competition, it's it's more than beef. It's also pork and lamb as well, right? That's right. And the same holds true for, for the other species as well. Marbling adds a lubrication effect, a flavor effect, kind of gives meat its buttery taste and buttery feel as well. And now that we've laid this basic groundwork, what is competitive meat judging? I've been wanting to ask that question all morning. 
Yeah, you bet. It's a team event, and it's something that students uh, here at CSU take part in, along with 16 to 20 other universities across the U.S. Uh, Students training to evaluate meat products on quality merits and, as a result, dollar values. Uh, These students work hard each day and, and long hours each day to try to understand the value of meat products and rank them accordingly. So though there are different categories in competitive meat judging, what are some of those? Yeah, good question. One that we've hit on quite a bit this morning is grading. So assigning the official USDA grade to products, uh, also placing uh, a set of four products. So for example, you may have four beef carcasses or four lamb carcasses, and the students would be asked to rank them first through fourth based on eating eating qualities and ultimately value determining characteristics. And then also written reasons. The students provide a written set of reasoning, uh, a front and back document, to justify their decisions. And they do that to an official committee who then evaluates and scores them on that. And then the final would be specifications. So the students would evaluate a set of meat products and determine whether they fit the specifications uh, according to the government or to a meat purchaser. For example, a food service establishment, uh, retail supermarket, government agency, etc. Do they actually taste the meat that they're judging? No tasting involved, and that's a big disappointment for me because I certainly (laughs) love to eat meat. But it's all visual appraisal. Um, and so they're doing that uh, with an objective mindset, but subjectively uh, with visual appraisal. So how does one judge the taste of meat if you're just looking at it? Is it, is it, is it easy to do for that, or is it, does it take a lot of training? It takes a tremendous amount of training. We use visual indicators. The, the primary one that most everyone's familiar with uh, is the marbling in the product, but mm-hmm. can also include color. Uh, the age of the carcass or the animal at the time of harvest. So those things have been proven through scientific research to uh, give good indication of eating characteristics. And and how do do students uh, go to this competition? Do they uh, wear uniforms like like the football team? Are they wearing team colors? That's a good question. So the students actually wear hard hats. These competitions take place in industrial environments, uh, meat processing facilities, food processing facilities, which require personal protective equipment. Um, The hard hat is the one that we use to differentiate teams. For example, Colorado State wears a green hard hat fitting with our school colors. Uh, In addition to that, most of the students wear a white frock. Uh, A frock would be like a lab coat. Uh, that, again, serves uh, in a food safety and cleanliness role to ensure that we're keeping the products safe to eat throughout the competition. And is there a meat-judging circuit, or, or, or do students go on the road winning these competitions, these trophies? Yeah, we actually compete in seven contests each year, along with, again, uh, anywhere between 16 and, and 20 other universities. And so we'll start here in Denver. We will go to Houston, Texas, and Fort Worth, Texas, and... Um, Omaha, Nebraska, and 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 actually out to Pennsylvania, Wyalusing, Pennsylvania, and do a contest out there. So we travel quite a bit on what you could call a circuit throughout a given calendar year. So are you kind of the head of almost like an amateur or team trying to gain the attention of, of professional uh, uh, people out there? Do you have scouts that come to these events that look at these uh, students and how they're uh, judging this meet? Well, I wouldn't necessarily call them scouts, but certainly... Um, 
government agencies and meat companies that are aware of meat judging and what it prepares students to do. And so there is certainly recruiting involved. So at the end of their four-year or six-year term at the university, then they would be hired on by these companies to help to improve meat quality attributes for that given company in a research and development role or a technical services role. So what type of, of student uh, would be interested in a competition like this? Who, who are you looking for to become the next, uh, you know, meat judger? Most of our students are, are studying in agricultural sciences and specifically animal sciences. So they're involved in livestock production. Livestock production is ultimately producing food from animals. So that is the primary uh, focus group that we have in meat judging but you'd be, you would be surprised. We have students across all colleges, across the entire campus, participating in this competitive event. Um, we've had students go on to be medical doctors. Uh, there are stories about chief of surgery at multiple uh, different hospitals across the United States having been involved in meat judging or livestock judging. Um, and that just comes back to the foundation that we're teaching students not just to evaluate meat products, but teaching them uh, critical thinking skills and communication skills and all of these things have proven to be very uh, successful in, in helping develop young students into professionals. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Colorado State University Professor of Animal Science, Dale Woner. He's chairman of the competition that's taking place this weekend at the National Western Stock Show that judges meat. It's quite the uh, uh, competitive process. How long has this been going on? Is this a couple years, decades? Meat judging dates back to 1925, so it has a a long and rich history uh, in the United States, specifically in agricultural colleges. Um, it's been going on every year since. Uh, I believe there was a couple of years during World War II that they didn't have an international contest, but every other year there's been meat judging, and there's rotating trophies in schools that have plaques and pictures along their walls uh, celebrating those victories uh, for over 90 years. And it's Professor Werner. I'm, I apologize for that. Is that correct? Yeah, you're correct. I, I'm sorry. I was you're saying it, I apologize. So I, I want to talk about, let's bring it back to the grocery store for someone who, who goes there. Is there a connection between what you're doing with this meat judging and, and what someone can find at the grocery store? Absolutely. As you mentioned in the opening to this, this uh, topic, grades of USDA prime choice and select are something that we are certainly teaching the students uh, to evaluate. But also anything that a consumer can see. In fact, many of the decisions we make are based on what consumer preferences are at the retail supermarket. In other words, if you prefer a steak that is bright cherry red in color or a pork chop that is light pink or grayish pink, we are taking that into consideration. The consumer appeal, the marketing, if you will, or what appeals to the consumers buying meat products in all of our decisions. It's all based on demand. And in terms of the competition, is this a year-round thing, or does it just happen during, you know, stock show time? Yeah, so our students actually compete for about a a year, but they prepare and compete for a year and a half. So our students start with the school semester in August, and they'll prepare the entire fall until January, start with the competition in Denver, and then they'll continue through the spring semester, competing in three contests and then four additional contests in the fall. Most of them are associated with livestock shows like the National Western. And you were talking about preparing for these. Is there, do you prepare hours a day? Do you study these, uh, the meat? Yes. I mean, our students start 
no later than 6 a.m., six days a week, preparing for this during uh, this holiday break, for example. So our students came back on the 4th of January, and every day except for Sunday, they've been going from 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. And so it's quite a lengthy process. They're putting a tremendous amount of time and effort into really honing and perfecting their skills as meat judges. Tremendous amount of work that goes into that. And again, another selling attribute of these students is their work ethic. Their willingness to wake up early, to work late, long, hard days is something that uh, our industry, the meat industry, sees as great value in these students. And now are your students uh, pumped up and ready to go for this weekend's competition? They are. You know, the competition's on Sunday. They actually went to Nebraska uh, yesterday, and they're working in another uh, meatpacking plant there. They'll visit Wyoming, the University of Wyoming, to practice a little more. And it's game on on Sunday, so they're ready, and and, uh, we'll find out Monday morning how well they do. Professor, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to speak with me. You bet. Have a great day. Professor Dale Werner has organized this year's meat judging competition at the National Western Stock Show. He also advises CSU's meat judging team, which will vie with other college teams to judge and categorize meat products this weekend. Up next, Hollywood has taken notice of Denver novelist Mara Weiler. We'll talk about her debut, Contrition. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Who is art for? When a painter puts brush to canvas, is it for the artist's enjoyment, for the audience that might one day enjoy it? Maybe it's for a higher purpose, say, for God. Denver writer Mara Weiler's new novel tackles these questions. Contrition takes place primarily in a cloistered convent. One of her main characters is a nun who's a brilliant painter. You could say this novel is a departure for Weiler. Her previous work has involved developing Hollywood screenplays like Speed and Twister. She spoke to Ryan Warner in May. And welcome to the program, Mara. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. So after years as a screenwriter on, you know, some some blockbusters, why write a novel exploring a monastic lifestyle? I ask myself that same question, and I really have to go back, and I believe it came from this desire to really find a great place to write, because it's very hard to find a place where you both have a community, but you also have the quiet and the distance to do your creative work. And I used to joke that I either wanted to check myself into a mental health facility or become a cloistered nun. And I decided the mental health facility was not a great idea, but I did go ahead and look into the cloistered way of life. And the nuns were just fascinating. And just being around them, I got this idea for a story in all of 10 minutes. And I didn't want to write it because I didn't feel qualified to write about cloistered nuns because it's such a fascinating world so distant from everything else. So distant and so isolated. In a way, it's a tough project to take on because it's not one you can write about easily. You know, it's not exactly like they're saying, oh, come into our world and, and observe us, right? Right. And I have such respect for their way of life that I didn't feel comfortable calling them up and say, hey, I'm showing up. You know, who wants to talk to me? So I had to be sort of circuitous about it. And since nuns don't typically offer retreats, the cloistered nuns, I visited a lot of monasteries with monks and brothers all around the state of California, which was fascinating. So I could attend their prayers throughout the day, including at midnight and 4 a.m. from the public side of the chapel. 
and watch them in their occupations, whether they were farmers or vintners or artists. And this gave you at least a taste for what cloistered nuns might experience. But I think you also interviewed, did you not, people who were joining that lifestyle. They were at the right. beginning of the of the process. Right. So after that, I discovered that there were uh, there was an office for, for vocations in Los Angeles, and I visited with all sorts of people considering a religious life. And they had seminars about how to transfer your money, how to go into a life of poverty, how to uh, tell your family that you're going to be going into a life, a religious life. So I got to know those women. And once a year, you could actually go to each of the monasteries you were interested in and speak to the women there. So that's when I actually got to speak to the cloistered nuns. And when I got there, I said, you know, I'm here to write a book. I'm not uh, interested in becoming a nun. But then they asked me, well, are you sure? Because you ask questions like you want to become a nun, which was a little bit disturbing because I was single at the time. Were there moments where you were actually pulled into the world and thought, maybe I would do this? There were. I I wondered because I, what I had learned in the process is that people who feel a vocation are often in denial and usually other people recognize it first in their actions and their behaviors. So I had to stop and say, well, maybe they're seeing something in me that I don't see in myself. But ultimately, I concluded that I was called more to write a novel about them than to spend my life with them because I just love learning about different worlds. And it seemed like that wouldn't, you know, be the right approach for my writing. Uh, So do you keep in touch with any of the nuns you spoke with? I do. Uh, One of the sisters was kind enough to read an early draft for accuracy. And uh, any mistakes in the book are now mine because she has not read subsequent drafts. Okay. You might have introduced a few. (laughs) Yes, exactly. In fact, a couple people have corrected me on some mistakes that I've made. And I also sent the book to all the monasteries and cloisters that I visited, and I've gotten some lovely notes back. I just want to go back to one thing you said. Um, Those who are thinking of joining the religious life have to find out how they would transfer their money? Well, you know, it's some of the order, you know, if you're a priest, you don't have a vow of poverty, but a lot of brothers and monks and sisters and nuns do uh, make a vow of poverty, in which case... What do you do with your car? What do you do with your condo? How does that work? And often what's advised is that you hold on to them for quite a while, a a year, six months. The idea that you take your time doing this to make sure you like the lifestyle enough to get rid of your worldly possessions. Yes, it's a very long, involved process to actually make your final vows. So fascinating. That's a little bit of the background of of contrition. Uh, Let's get more into the specifics of the story. So journalist Dory McKenna who was adopted, discovers that her late biological father was a world-famous artist. And Dory also learns that she has a twin who is uh, this cloistered nun. It's his sister Catherine, once Candace. And she, uh, Sister Catherine, has inherited their father's talent for painting. I'm going to have you read an excerpt from the book now. This is the first time Dory, the journalist and sister, sees a painting Uh, by her sister uh, Catherine, and she notices something striking about one of the figures in it. With her huge almond-shaped eyes, long nose, and rosebud mouth, the Madonna appeared so tranquil that I wanted to trade places with her. I hadn't been able to track down a photo of my biological mom, but I'd always pictured her wearing the same composed expression. My eyes flicked to the baby Jesus, whose face hinted at a sadness not shared by his mother. Seeing the Madonna holding the child on her lap... I thought of my mother's, the one I'd known and loved, and the one I would never meet, and realized that no matter how tightly my adoptive mom held me, I'd never found peace. The baby in the painting seemed to understand. I saw the tension in his hands. 
His left hand grasped his mother's for extra support, while his right hand curled into a partial fist with the thumb tucked under the extended index and middle fingers. I gasped and reared back. What's the matter, dear? Sister Teresa peered over the top of her glasses at me. I have to go. I stood up and fled the room. Why does Dory have such a strong reaction to this very classic painting? Because uh, the way the baby Jesus is holding his hand sort of uh, clutched in a fist with just two fingers up resembles her own handicap. She has, uh, I shouldn't say handicap, rather she has a disabled hand where uh, she cannot use her thumb ring and pinky fingers and just those two fingers that the baby Jesus is holding up. So that's often how she holds her own hand. Hmm. And this, it freaks her out a bit to see uh, someone with the same characteristic. Right, because she's not aware of whether or not her sister knows about her, much less about her disabled hand. And therefore, she's very taken aback to see this painting that she doesn't even know is by her sister at the time. Yeah. But well, starts she, to wonder. She discovers that her sister is indeed a very talented painter. Right. And Dory, as a journalist, is interested in making her famous. Right. And telling the world about her sister's incredible painting talent. And it turns out she she kind of writes the outline of a story for herself, really. Mm-hmm. But her editor goes behind her back and publishes her story. Mm-hmm. And it's a real violation because Dory realizes that her sister wants to stay unknown. She doesn't paint for an audience. She paints for herself. She paints for God. Mm-hmm. And so chaos ensues. Right. It's really uh, about Catherine's focus on the process of painting as prayer and really having God paint through her as opposed to being famous. And she saw what fame did to her own father, which was not a happy end for him when uh, at one point he was not. He was critically acclaimed and then he changed his style and he wasn't as well received. And that really kind of ruined him as a person. And she didn't want to have that sort of attachment to fame. And the book is Contrition. We're speaking with its Denver author, Mara Weiler. What I find fascinating about uh, the sister who paints is that sometimes she'll paint over something she's already painted. Mm -hmm. And so she's fine that painting and art can be ephemeral, even if it's a masterpiece. Right, exactly. And I do art as well. I do decoupage on shoes. And when I first did it, I really didn't care whether it lasted or not. And it was interesting when it started to get some attention that suddenly I was worried about that and I wanted to make it better and I wanted to make it more finished. And suddenly I was worried if it got dirty or got wet or got dusty. And and it was really a struggle to see that happening in me for something that I was able to just really enjoy in the past. Right, because if you don't worry about it getting dirty or you don't even worry about it existing beyond the time of its creation, maybe there's a a, a piece to that. Right. Uh, in fact, my husband and I were quibbling the other day because he's a painter and he was throwing out several paintings. And I got on Facebook, he's throwing out paintings, you know, and everybody's like, stop him, stop him. And <laughs> and I, uh, I did save about half of them. But, you know, here I am, I've written this whole book about process and I'm still struggling it with, with it myself. You said you're an artist in your own right. Uh, mm-hmm. Your art has been described as trash art. Mm-hmm. You said decoupage on shoes? I just have a thing for found objects. So, And I like shoes because they have a soul, S-O-U-L, and a soul, S-O-L-E, I suppose. <laughs> and I just like to think about the miles it's walked and the past it's had, and I just hate to throw it out. And, and I feel the same way about a cereal box that looks great and has wonderful colors. So I kind of put them together and send them out in the world. 
So we've talked about the character in your book, the, the nun who paints. Uh, let's talk a bit more about her sister, Dory, the journalist, mm-hmm. uh, who wants to expose her sister's work to the world and, you know, in so doing, perhaps elevate her own career as a journalist. Right. And it made me think that there's this theme of ambition in your work. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of ambition? I think I do. I I mainly struggle. I realized later after writing the book or while writing it that Dory and Catherine are really two sides of my own struggle, just wanting to write and make art for, for myself and my own enjoyment and the joy of it. And if people see it, great. But the other side is Dory saying, I need to make a living so that I can do more art and write some more. So I think I've always kind of felt that struggle in my own career as well. You dedicate this book to your good friend, uh, an abstract artist uh, mm-hmm. as well, uh, Christine Tabor. Right. She was an inspiration, even helped with some of the research for this book. Mm-hmm. And she was killed in an accident. Right. Um, what happened? What happened and how did she shape the book? Well, I, uh, as I, as we've mentioned, I'm an artist, but I was not a painter and I hadn't met my husband yet. And I needed to research for the paintings for the book. And I used to write in a coffee shop, and I looked up, and there was this amazing abstract painting on the wall, and it just knocked me out, and I had to know who did it. And then it turned out that my favorite barista had done it. She was a graduate of an, uh, USC with her MFA, and she was pursuing her art career while working at the coffee shop to support herself, you know, mm. doing the same balance of art and making a living. And then she hit it big. She sold paintings to celebrities. She was able to quit her barista job. She had her first major show. She turned 32 a couple days after the opening, and a couple days after that, she was killed on her bicycle. And that's when, after hesitating to write a novel because I was really a screenwriter, that was the day I knew I had to write the book. I had to dedicate it to her, and I wanted to write about her paintings. So while the paintings in the book are religious, all the feeling and the descriptions behind them are how I feel about Christine's paintings. And the one abstract featured in the book is actually based on Lift, which is a painting that I own by Christine. Mm. Did she encourage you to write this novel? I had already had the idea, but uh, she certainly encouraged me and helped me with the research. And she was a model as well in the sense that she just lived her life to the fullest every minute. She would take apart her car just to see how it worked and see how she could make it work better, which was so unusual to me from a creative standpoint as an artist. Typically, we're not recognized as highly technical people. She just embraced life with such joy and um I, ironically, she was also a twin, which uh, that actually that element and the sister element came to the book later after she passed. Right. So there's this question of the the twins in this book, twin sisters separated at birth, who are also adopted, and mm-hmm. you you've now adopted children. Right. So um, there's so many tentacles here into real life for you, I suppose. Yes, I had uh, written the book with the journalist and the nun not being related, and at the suggestion of an agent, I made them sisters which initially I really balked at because it sounded like bad reality television to or me. Or soap opera stuff Yes, or I just couldn't. Oh, my, delica- my delicate genius was highly offended by the suggestion. <laughs> but I just couldn't go on. Now I, had to, I was wondering. I had to see how that played out, and it played out very well. And I actually got my own lesson in process over product in that I finished this book in 2007, and it sold randomly in 2013 to Simon & Schuster. Years so, later. Yes. So by the time the book sold, I was the mother of two adopted children. And my first instinct was, I got to clean up the adoption part. That It has to be beautiful. It has to be joyful because it's a wonderful experience. And then I really thought about it. And I talked, we are blessed with open adoptions. Um, so I talked to the birth moms and we all agreed, you know, do- adoption isn't perfect. It isn't pretty. It's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's, it's the right thing on so many occasions, but it's more respectful to 
represent it honestly. So in my story, Dory has a closed adoption. and Most of her issues are about moving on from never knowing her birth parents, which hopefully won't be an issue for my children. Hmm. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. Denver author Mara Weiler spoke to Ryan Warner in May, and she's one step closer to seeing contrition hit the big screen. She recently handed in a screenplay of the book, and there's already interest in Hollywood. Weiler will be speaking at the Chautauqua Community House in Boulder on Tuesday, January 19th, about turning contrition into a screenplay. And that's our show for this Thursday. Thanks to Stephanie Wolf, Andrew Dukakis, Sam Brash, audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, managing producer Rachel Estabrook, and Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Public Radio.